Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 9. Clamber Closer Clara That first long run from Philadelphia to Chicago was the start of our Sullivan and Considine time, which was eventually to take us all the way to the other side of the continent and back. The whole journey was in the region of 760 miles, taking around 20 hours, which we passed in games of dice and cards and trying to make the boxcar tolerably habitable. But by the time we arrived at Chicago's Union Station, the novelty had most definitely worn off. I actually have very fond memories of the hotel we stayed in on Uptown Wabash Avenue, though. Alf's injunction that the male and female performers were to be quartered in separate establishments still held, but Carno's hopes that this would put a stop to any moral turpitude were soon made a mockery of. Alf had booked us lads into this particular hotel during his advance trip, but by the time we took up residence, the nature of the clientele had, shall we say, subtly altered. I awoke from a deep slumber the first morning we were there, still bone-tired and poor-clogged from the marathon train journey, to find Mike Asher standing over me, a towel slung jauntily around his neck. "'Hey, Arthur,' he said, shaking me by the shoulder. "'What? What is it?' "'Just a word of friendly advice,' Mike said. "'This hotel is absolutely packed to the blooming rafters, and there's been quite an ugly queue for the bathroom, but if you nip down one floor, there's a bit of a lull just now.' So if I were you, I'd get in while the getting is good. Go on, old man. Chop, chop. Oh, right. Um, thanks, I muttered, blundering into my bathrobe and grabbing a towel of my own. Appreciate it. It was a rule of the travelling life always to take advantage of a free bathroom first thing, so I stumbled, half awake and yawning, down the stairs to the floor below ours, and sure enough, there was no queue outside the communal facility. Good old Mike, I thought to myself, and pushed the door ajar. The mirror on the wall was steamed up, so I wiped it with my towel and gave a cursory inspection to my sallow features before turning my attention to the clawfoot bathtub. Hiya, sugar! Sitting there in the tub, slippery, pink and naked as the day they were born, were two gorgeous young women, right in the middle of the act of soaping each other down with the bubbles that were spilling luxuriously over the edge. Where have you popped up from, honey? One of these visions said with a twinkling smile. I took a half-step back in amazement, clutching absently at my suddenly thumping heart. The two young women gazed at me curiously, their hands still pushing bubbles around each other's curves, and I felt I had to say something, so I blurted out, "Uh, "'Good morning, ladies. I do beg your pardon. I had no notion the room was occupied.' One of the girls cocked her head on one side, without even thinking of covering herself up, and she said, "'Oh, I do so love an English accent. Don't you, Belle?' Belle, the other one, gave a little sigh and said, "'I surely do, sister. It makes me go weak inside.' Covered with confusion, I excused myself and stumbled back out into the corridor. The girls gave me cheery little finger-waves as I went, and smiled. I I think they did, anyway. It was all I could do to look at their faces. 
Every door to every room on the floor seemed to be open as I scurried back to the stairs, and every room seemed to have a girl inside, either getting dressed or undressed. None of them was in the least bit embarrassed. They just sang out a cooey or howdy, sweetheart, as I passed, as though I were an old friend. Back in the sanctuary of the room I was sharing, as usual, with Freddy Jr., I collapsed onto the bedstead, panting. Mike and Freddy were there, laughing their heads off, and I realised I'd just been suckered. "'Boys!' Mike exclaimed. "'This hotel may just be my favourite hotel in the whole world!' "'What's happening?' I gasped. "'There's a burlesque house on the next block, right? "'Well, the girls are all staying here. Twenty-three of them. "'I just found out exactly the same way you did. "'They don't care. They hadn't even bothered to bolt the door.' "'Holy!' I muttered as Freddy and Mike hugged themselves with glee, "'rocking back and forth on the other bed, making the springs squeak noisily. "'We're going to have such a time,' Mike said, rubbing his hands together gleefully." And they did. Tilly was highly amused by the lad's exploits when I explained it all to her a few days later. We were in Jackson Park, looking out over Lake Michigan, which stretched Mill Pond Flat to the far horizon and beyond. Mike and Freddy are like kids in a sweet shop, I said, playing up their English accents for all they're worth with their what-whats and their don't you knows. And the girls love that, do they? They positively swoon. Stan is utterly in love, mooning around after a lass called Sally, and she hasn't had to pay for anything this whole week. That sounds about right. A fool in his money, eh? What about the other single boys? Well, I don't know if I should say. Oh, don't be such a tease. Well, Charlie Griffiths is very popular, I'll tell you that for nothing. He's the odd man out, the one with a room to himself, so everyone is pestering him to swap. Tilly's mouth dropped open. You're joking. No, I'm not. I've had the big lump sharing with me a couple of times already, because Freddy has come to some arrangement or other with him. Good heavens. Bert Williams is in clover, what with his ventriloquist tricks. He's not only got the English accent going for him, he can make it appear to come from wherever or whatever he wants. You don't mean... Oh, never mind. Well, what do you mean? You know what I mean. What? He can make it... talk? See? You're interested now. I am not, she protested. And what about Albert Austin? Surely no one's chasing after that odd ball, are they? Do you know, I think Austin's having the best time of all. The girls are positively queuing up to pose for his camera, all wanting to be captured in their prime, and he's so prim and polite with them that they all trust him implicitly. It's a good ploy, and he's made a bob or two from illicit copies of those photos as well. The little scamp. Who else? I've seen Frank Melroyd bouncing a girl on each knee, looking red-faced and sweaty while they play with his hair. Uh Uh-huh. A little pause. And Charlie? No, I said. He doesn't seem interested in indulging. I think the burlesque girls are a little vulgar for his taste. I see. And you? What about you, Arthur Dando? Has one of these buxom beauties caught your eye? Well, no, not really, I said. Come on, you can tell me. Really, no. And why is that, pray? Well, none of them could hold a candle to you. She went quiet then, gazing out over the water. "'Well, you asked,' I said, after a minute. "'Poor Arthur,' she said. "'So you're missing out on all the fun.' "'Are you saying it's not fun listening to Charlie Griffith snoring away like a hog?' "'Ha-ha, <laughs> not what I'd call fun. Come on, let's walk.' She took my arm and pulled in close to me, and we strolled back towards the city. The next day I called on Tilly again, but she was already out and about, so I set off for a stroll through the neighbouring blocks by myself.' 
So far, I had not seen anything that much resembled the Wild West of my penny bloods, as first Philadelphia and now Chicago were both big cities that were not so very different from New York, with their tall buildings crammed together, thrusting into the sky, and trolley buses crawling up the middle of their wide thoroughfares. After I'd walked away from the city for a little while, with no particular aim in mind, though, I suddenly began to feel that this was a bit more like it. I found myself on a street that was not metalled, just hard-packed mud flecked with patches of grey-brown ice. Motorised traffic had thinned out to almost nothing, and here and there rough-looking fellows were tying their horses up outside saloon bars with swinging doors. I strolled along the wooden boardwalk in front of a row of basic establishments, drug stores and butchers and barbers and bars, and could almost imagine the crackle of gunplay erupting all around me, except it was mid-morning and a weekday, and everyone was disappointingly civilised. There was a constant, gently amiable rattling noise, though, and I noticed that pretty much every store, every drug store and bar, had a dice table set out in front of it, and hardy old-timers in tatty fingerless gloves were encouraging passers-by to try their luck. Perhaps they'd be able to afford that little treat they were denying themselves after all. I was just thinking to myself that I wouldn't have fancied sitting out in the freezing cold all day long when my eye was taken by an item hanging in the window of one of these drug stores, a long black coat, much warmer looking than my thin jacket, that would be just the thing for a midwestern winter. I took a closer look, steaming the window with my breath, and the storekeeper came bustling out to stand shivering beside me in his shirt sleeves and apron. Handsome, ain't it? he ventured. Just one previous owner, and it'd fit you nicely, I'd say. How much, I said, just making conversation, really, because I feared it would be out of my price range, and when he mentioned the figure he had in mind, I realised I was right. Why not try a roll or two, sir? The storekeeper said, thinking that if he couldn't clean me out for the coat, at least he'd winkle a couple of bucks out of me. As it happened, I was well versed in the ways of the dice table, having picked up the intricacies of high-low and chuck-a-luck while shooting dice backstage with one of the troops we'd shared a bill with in New York, and I'd won a pocketful of cigarette coupons that were no use to me unless I happened upon a similarly attractive overcoat in a United Cigar store. Long story short, I'd gone on a bit of a roll, literally, and shortly afterwards set off back to the hotel with a jaunty spring in my step, wearing the coat and smiling at the memory of the storekeeper's rueful expression as he'd reached it down from its high hook with a long pole. After the evening show, I headed to O'Flanagan's, the Irish bar round the corner, there always seemed to be an Irish bar round the corner, with everyone else for a drink. Stan, Freddy and Mike nursed their beers, all watching the door and waiting for their burlesque girls to arrive, their tongues practically hanging out. When he wasn't in the company of his particular favourite, a buxom Latin lovely by the name of Lucia, Mike liked to spend the time talking about her. She calls me Mike, he explained for the umpteenth time, as though she's just seen a mouse halfway through saying my name, which is adorable, by the way. What have you been up to then? Freddy asked me, with something close to pity in his voice. Actually, I said, I bought myself a coat. It's good and warm, apart from at the back, where it's split up to the waist for wearing on horseback, so it gets a bit drafty. Second hand. Second hand, eh? Stan murmured absently, glancing at the door and fingering his watch. Yes, obviously I'd have preferred to have salvaged it from the frozen body of a dead prospector and found a map of a gold strike crumpled in the pocket, but, you know, this is not quite the Wild West, is it? I was talking to myself by then, though, as Lucia and Sally had come in with assorted other lovelies in their wake, and my friends were lost to me. Charlie was sitting in the corner, pointedly reading a slim volume of poetry in Latin, if you please. Or maybe he wasn't actually reading it, but it was open in front of him. There was no sign of Tilly, and I presumed she'd gone back to her hotel with Amy and the other married ladies, so I decided to call it a night. 
Back in the room, I lay on my back in the dark, alone. Freddy, I imagined, was busy coming of age elsewhere in the building, and mercifully hadn't needed to turf Charlie Griffiths out of his single accommodation to do it. I watched the lights of the elevated trains playing on the wall like a kind of private bioscope, and my thoughts turned, as they so often did, to Mr Charles Chaplin and Miss Matilda Beckett. The longer the tour went on, and the further we got from the fun factory, the less concerned Charlie seemed about keeping on the right side of me. Maybe he thought that Carno would not be especially agitated about all his previous misdemeanours. He didn't know the governor as well as he thought he did, if that was what he was thinking. Now Tilly and I were seeing a fair bit of one another, and I was trying to at least give the impression that my rivalry with Charlie was not so important to me. He, I was itching to point out, had tried to make a move on her back in New York, and that had backfired on him precisely because of his obsessive rivalry with me, and with Stan too. Then my reverie was cut short by a light tap on the door. "'Who's there?' I called, but there was no reply. Instead, the handle turned slowly, and the door began to open, revealing a very comely figure silhouetted in the corridor outside, dark hair piled on top of her head and tumbling down onto her bare shoulders. "'Hello?' I said. "'Are you looking for Freddy? Because I'm, I'm not quite sure where he... um... is.' "'No, sugar. I ain't a-looking for Freddy. I'm looking for you, and I reckon it's how I've found you.' Now why don't you invite me in, in that gorgeous accent of yours, and we two can get ourselves better acquainted? Her voice was as rich and sweet as honey, and carried the distinctive twang of the South, which, coincidentally, was where I was beginning to feel definite stirrings of interest. I knew I should be sending this alluring creature away, but I couldn't quite summon up the words. Instead, I heard myself saying, in as plummy an English accent as I've ever heard myself using, "'Forgive me, uh, where are my manners?' Let me just get the light. Never you mind about the light, honey, she said, whoever she was. We can manage just fine in the dark. Much more cosy. She stepped inside then, and closed the door behind her. In the darkness I heard the high heels of a pair of spring-sided boots clicking on the floor as the temptress walked slowly towards me, and I could just make out her shapely legs sheathed in black silk stockings that swished lightly together as she moved, and a red and black basque that seemed to be offering up a creamy white bosom for my inspection. I, um, well, I ventured impressively, I should perhaps introduce myself properly before we, um, go any further. As you wish, sugar, my visitor drawled, but I'm happy just to go further. Dando, Arthur Dando, I burbled as she sat next to me on the bed, her thigh pressing urgently against mine, her intoxicating perfume filling my head. And you are? Call me Clara, she breathed and began nibbling on my ear. I suppose one of my friends has arranged this, have they? I managed to say. You could say that, honey pie. Clara murmured, moving down to my neck. "'Which one, I wonder?' I said. Well, "'Let me see,' said Clara, placing a finger to her lips thoughtfully. "'Would you have a friend by the name of—of—of of, of Matilda Beckett?' "'But what—Tilly arranged for you to—' Clara sat up straight beside me then, reached up, and pulled a sumptuous black wig from atop her head, allowing her own distinctive blonde curls to tumble free. Just then, an elevated train rattled past outside, and there was just enough light to see the triumphant beam on her lovely face. Ha! Arthur Dando, your face! Tilly, what the— She stood up then, to give me the full effect of her disguise before the train passed by entirely. 
I borrowed this clobber from Lucia, Mike's special friend. Such a lovely girl, by the way. Do you like it? You look incredible, I said, still recovering myself. I just didn't like the thought of you missing out on all the fun, Tilly said. It's not been easy, I said. So, she said, tilting her head to one side, hands on hips. I'm more or less finished with this disguise, wouldn't you say? Perhaps I should take it off. Oh, please, I said. Allow me. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chapter 10. Out Where the Blue Begins. The next morning I awoke to the rustlings and swishings of Tilly relocating her various items of borrowed exotic clothing. When she saw me stir, she rolled back onto the bed beside me and kissed me on the cheek. I need to go, she whispered. I don't want to be missed at breakfast now, do I? You're going back to your hotel, I said blearily. You can't. Yes, dear, I must, she said, pulling herself away from my embrace and retrieving the dark wig from where she had thrown it. Not like that, though, I said. You can't walk the streets dressed like that. Or rather, you certainly could, but you probably shouldn't. Hmm. Tilly glanced down with a frown at the revealing costume she'd borrowed from Lucia. Take my coat, I said, fetching it from the wardrobe. Outside the door, she stretched up on tiptoes and kissed me goodbye, and then skipped quickly along the corridor to the stairs and away. The saddle cut of my new coat afforded me a pleasant view of her silk-clad legs and her high-heeled boots, and I drank it in until she was out of sight. I heard a little cough, looked round, and there, also watching, was Frank Melroyd on his way back from the bathroom in his dressing gown and slippers, a towel slung round his neck. "'One of the burlesque women, eh?' he mumbled. "'Yep,' I said, and winked. At the end of our second week in Chicago, the burlesque girls moved on, but Mike, Freddie and Stan were not too downcast. The hotel manager had let slip that the replacement company at the burlesque house had booked the whole of the second floor for the next fortnight.' "'Fresh meat!' Mike said gleefully, and he was not wrong. Mike, Stan, Freddy and Albert tiptoed down the stairs on the day of their arrival, having heard saucy feminine giggling, but they quickly came scurrying back, sweating and trembling. The new troop were known as Billy Watson and his Beef Trust. 
Watson, the host, star comedian and producer of the show, was an odd-looking fellow, bald, but with a spike of hair on top of his gleaming pate, much like the Marconi aerial on top of Wanamaker's department store. His Beef Trust was the unflattering name of his review, which featured nearly a ton of feminine flesh, according to his own publicity posters, in the form of 20 enormously fat, middle-aged women parading around in corsets and tights. They were no less openly lascivious than their predecessors. They were, however, vast, and you did have the impression that any one of them could have eaten poor Freddy alive. I'm going to have to put this back, Mike shuddered, something metallic clinking in his pocket. It was the lock from the second-floor bathroom door. The one thing we were all mustard keen to take a squint at was the international aviation meet, which was taking place at, or strictly speaking, above... Grant Park. So one late morning, the whole gang of us headed over there and joined the thousands of spectators thronging the park, all craning their necks to peer upwards into the bright spring sky. The park itself formed a natural arena for the event, sandwiched between a towering row of impressively grand beachview hotels, all their balconies packed with lucky enthusiasts, and the great flat expanse of Lake Michigan. Boats of all sizes were lurking offshore, yachts and small steamers, with still more watchers leaning over their railings and pointing to the crisp blue heavens. There were already more than a dozen aircraft swooping and swirling in the sky when we arrived, with more on the far lawns either just landed or waiting to take off. It was coming up to Good Friday, and I couldn't quite shake the impression that the sky was full of flying crucifixes. There were monoplanes darting like swallows, biplanes too, some with straight pairs of wings, some with wings bowed in at the tips, giving them an oval aspect, and one triplane that looked like nothing so much as a flying slice of quivering cream cake. The noise of their engines was faint and distant, like a far-off wasp's nest, or a children's party dissolving into raspberry-blowing anarchy. Tossed this way and that by the breeze coming in off the lake, like children's kites only without the strings, it seemed that there must be a collision any minute, but somehow the aviators were able to control their craft sufficiently to twitch and weave out of each other's way. After I'd watched them for a while, it seemed more and more to me that they were deliberately flying close to one another to give the spectators an extra thrill, perhaps, or to put the wind up a particular competitor up there. They looked impossibly flimsy and dangerous, especially when you saw them stationary and ungainly on the grass, with the wind rippling the light canvas of their wings and the skinny struts holding them up flexing under their weight. Sometimes the pilots would stand up in their cockpits to take the acclaim of the cheering crowds, and their little machines would wobble from side to side with every wave of their leather caps and goggles. As we weaved through the strolling throngs, I was desperate to get Tilly on her own. All I'd been able to think about since that night she came a-calling as Clara the hot little burlesque piece was... What did it mean? Had Tilly finally put aside all her misgivings about me, about resuming a relationship with me? Was I finally forgiven for my previous misdemeanours, for choosing my career over our pretend marriage back in England, and for rejecting her when I thought she'd succumbed to Carno's casting couch? Had I finally convinced her that I would put her first, ahead of my rivalry with Chaplin? I went over to a stall selling something called Fairy Floss. I'd never seen anything like it before. It was like a a cloud on a stick, made, as it turned out, from sugar heated and spun in a special machine, shaped like a little bathtub. I bought a couple and took them over to Tilly, and, as I hoped, the sickly sweet novelty lured her away from the others, particularly the ubiquitous lingering Melroyd, and soon we were walking along together towards the shore of the Great Lake. A man with a megaphone announced that a certain Lincoln Beachy had just created a new altitude record of something over 11,500 feet. 
"'How do they know that?' I said. "'That's one hell of a long ruler he must have taken up there with him.' "'Or eleven and a half thousand small ones,' Tilly said. "'It's funny, this stuff, isn't it? "'You take a great big bite of it, "'and suddenly it's like there's nothing in your mouth at all.' "'I was hoping I might see our friend Clara again "'before we leave Chicago,' I ventured. "'Oh, were you? "'Very much so. "'Well, I'm afraid Clara was a one-night-only performance.' "'Oh? "'Why is that? "'It was just meant to be a bit of fun, you know, a joke.' "'A joke? "'Yes, you know. "'You were telling me all about what Freddy and Mike were getting up to, "'and I thought, why should we miss out, eh?' "'I see.' Anyway, your hotel is full of these enormous beef women now, and I could hardly pass myself off as one of them, now could I? I don't suppose so, I said. Oh, Arthur, don't tell me you've been taking it all too seriously. Thinking it was a new start, and now we're engaged or something. I knew you would, I knew I shouldn't have done it, but it was such a good ruse. And such... I mean, your face. You had no idea, did you? No, I admitted, my head spinning. You were... brilliant. Why, thank you, she said with a little curtsy. Mind you, I nearly got caught by Alf when I got back to my hotel, you know. Did you? Oh, yes. It was a very close thing. I passed him on the stairs, going down for his breakfast. Luckily, I had that black wig on and your big coat. Ha-ha! <laughs> I managed to laugh. Yes, that would have been a real nuisance. Quite apart from all that moral turpitude nonsense he's perpetually banging on about, I do have my reputation to consider. Ha! <laughs> your reputation! I snorted without thinking. What? She turned sharply. Why did you say it like that? Your reputation. Like what? So scathing. I didn't mean anything. Didn't you? It sounded like you thought that I didn't have much of a reputation to consider. No, no, not at all. I mean, as long as people don't find out. About what? About, well, you know. I was in agonies. How on earth had I ended up seemingly criticising her for the very thing I most wanted her to do again? Meanwhile, Tilly's indignation was picking up momentum. I suppose you're saying to Mike and Stan and Freddy and the others that they shouldn't have a good time while they can, eh? That they should think of their reputations. No, of course not. I, so why should it be any different for me? I don't know. And you were quite happy to be seduced by a complete stranger for all you knew? Yes, yes, I was. Well then. I held my breath and the little storm seemed to blow itself out. We walked along, nibbling at the last of the cotton candy, which was making my teeth itch. A biplane buzzed slowly along the same line as our footpath, and when we looked up we could see the aviator's feet and the bottom of his canvas seat. When I was in Paris last year, at the Folie Bergère, Tilly began again, the girls there would quite cheerfully go out with several gentlemen friends at once. Why not, they'd say. No one owns us, we do what we want. It didn't mean they were looking for someone to settle down with, necessarily. I see, I said. Like the Neem sisters, do you know them? Both singers on the halls, both now the mistresses of wealthy men who saw them there. One's calling herself Lady Fortescue now. Huh. Somewhere after a ring, of course, especially if it came to a castle and an obscure European title. Oh, like that Hohenzollern fellow I found you with, I said. Hmm, she said. But it is an invigorating attitude to have. Quite liberating, really. Why should I worry about breaking the rules in a society that won't even let me vote? Why should I not pursue what I want? Why can't I make the most of myself, as a performer, for instance? No earthly reason, I said, spotting my cue. But that's not all you want, surely. What about... what about what? Well, love. Oh, love. Love is all very well. But why does it mean I have to be tied down? Why shouldn't I have the freedom to fly, soar around the sky like these chaps? 
It must have felt like a pretty straightforward connection to make, but unfortunately, just at that very moment, one of the biplanes was going into a crowd-thrilling dive, plummeting down towards the watching public, who scattered in all directions like a group of pigeons being chased by a small boy. The plan must have been to level off just above our heads, buzzing away like a giant insect, but this particular fellow was coming in too fast, and about a hundred feet up, the wings just tore off his plane all at once and spiralled away to either side while the pilot nosed straight down into the turf with a sickening thump. Tilly gasped in horror and covered her face with her hands. I looked away, but not before seeing one of the crumpled pairs of wings collapsing slowly on top of a knot of spectators, squashing them helplessly to the ground, and temporarily at least they were crushed. I knew how they felt. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.